Let's open our Bibles together then to Romans chapter 7. As we continue on in this glorious treasure that we have been given, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman church. We are continuing on where we left off last week. That has us picking up in chapter 7 at verse 7. And so let's read together now. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came. Sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this precious gift that you have given to us, that by your Spirit's working through your Word, you accomplish every single one of your eternal and supernatural purposes, that you cause dead hearts to live and blinded eyes to see. You open up deaf ears and cause hearts of stone to be made into hearts of flesh. You even, in the lives of your people, transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son. So I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of your purposes through your word, by your spirit this morning in us. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your words that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in the passage we're considering this morning, Paul is vindicating the law. The reason Paul needs to vindicate the law here is because up to this point, He's been explaining to us the law's limitations. He's been showing us the response of the unbelieving heart to the law of God. And so he told us all the way back in chapter 3, verse 20, that the law is incapable of justifying, of saving anyone. Last week in the verses we considered, we saw that the law can't even sanctify us. The law does not have within it the power to make a person righteous. In fact, in verse 5 of this chapter... He says what the law does in the unregenerate heart is not to make it more holy, it arouses sin, it excites sin within us, which only brings forth what Paul said was the fruit for death. He even said that we as believers have died to the law and been made alive to grace. We now live under grace. Well, all of these statements Paul has been making might lead the reader to some very wrong conclusions. They might conclude, as believers, if that's the case, then the law must be useless. 
There's no purpose in it. There's no purpose in the, the commandments of God. If, that is, if the commandments don't save us, if the commandments aren't what have the power to transform our hearts, then what's the point? Even worse, they might decide, as Paul points here, that the law was somehow collaborating with sin. The law is on the wrong side of things. It's exciting and arousing sin. It's producing fruit for death, and so the law itself must be sinful. Well, Paul answers these false understandings emphatically. We see a couple times in this passage, maybe it stuck out to you as we read it, that exclamation, by no means, the strongest condemnation that the New Testament has to offer. But in order to to explain what Paul is getting at, in order to combat these false assumptions, Paul is going to now use himself as an example. And so really, from verse 7, where we started reading this morning, through the end of chapter 7, Paul is going to use many, many personal pronouns. In, in fact, there are more of them in this passage than anywhere else in Scripture. Words like I, me, my, myself. Paul's going to use these words and refer to himself directly some 47 times for the rest of this chapter. He, and, and as Paul is demonstrating the relationship of the law to sin and death, Here in this passage, he's going to look back on his life before his conversion. So Paul's speaking as a converted man, as a a believer, one who is in Christ, is looking back on his life before that time, prior to his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. What Paul's going to show us is, prior to that encounter, prior to the moment of his conversion, he totally misunderstood the design and purpose of God's law. He knew God's law inside and out, but he totally misunderstood what it was all about. He saw it as a means of earning salvation, as a means of keeping salvation. What Christ revealed to Paul was that was actually a false gospel, a false salvation. Instead, Paul was made to see that God had designed the law so that through its application, sin might be seen for what it is, might be seen as utterly sinful, might be seen as foul, repulsive, to be fled from. So that through the application of the law, he might see sin as overwhelming in its deception and power, and so run from sin and turn to Christ, and come to Christ in faith, Christ alone for salvation. So what the moral law of God does for us, the moral law is given to us in order to unmask sin, to reveal it for what it really is. When the Holy Spirit applies the law to the sinner, when the Holy Spirit convicts one of sin, he becomes deeply aware of his unrighteousness. Maybe, maybe you remember this moment, however many years ago it was for you, when God chose to save you by his Spirit, and you remember your awareness of your unrighteousness, your need for salvation, If you never had a moment where you became aware of your unrighteousness and your need for salvation, that's likely because you were never converted. Because at its heart is this conviction that comes from the Spirit. We become aware of our deserved condemnation because of sin, of of our own total inability to save ourselves. So Leon Morris says, God's law is not given to boost our self-esteem, but to bust it. 
That's why the law is given, so that we will see sin for what it is, we will see it at work within us, and we will recognize our great need for salvation. And so Paul is being intensely personal in this passage, in this greater chapter. He's speaking as, again, one who is now in Christ, one who is no longer enslaved to sin, one who is no longer under the just condemnation from the law because of sin. But he's telling us about what happens to any sinner who's confronted with the law. And he's vindicating the law's good purpose and design. And it's not just Paul's story. This is our story. When we hear Paul using this personal language, believer, this is your story too, not just, not just Paul's story. And so what is the purpose then of the moral law of God? Well, here in verses 7 through 13, Paul gives us an answer as to the nature and the function of God's moral law. First is this, the law of God defines sin. Look with me now at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what's Paul saying here? Sin, or the law isn't what causes sin. The law is what identifies sin. The the law reveals the desire of the fallen human nature to sin more and more and more. Sin is, as we saw last week, stirred up by the law. And sin takes every opportunity wherever the law speaks to tempt us to violate that law. So Paul uses one one example of covetousness. The the law that says you shall not covet doesn't create covetousness. Nor does the law that says you shall not covet remove covetousness from us. It just calls attention to the fact that we're doing it. We're coveting, and not just the fact that we're doing it and that sin is in us, but it reveals that sin for what it is. This is rebellion against the almighty living God. That's what the law does. And so the law speaks, and we realize that we are sinful before a holy God. That's the first function of the moral law. But notice, too, the particular sin that Paul uses to illustrate this point, the sin of covetousness. Of all the Ten Commandments, this one, perhaps more than any other, reveals the inward battle of the flesh that we live in. This word covet could also be translated as lust. This overwhelming, all-encompassing desire for a thing. And there really is just something about forbidden fruit, isn't there? That, That which we can't have, that which is outside of our reach, That makes it so desirable to us. We talked last week about walking on the sidewalk past that lush green grass and seeing that sign planted in the yard that says, keep off the grass. And there's something in us that rises up that says, this would be the most pleasurable experience of my life, to just walk on this grass. Even if you're someone like me who doesn't spend a lot of time barefoot outside. We covet We lust after, we desire things that are forbidden, even as young children, don't we, parents? We might not remember how we did it, but we we see how our kids and grandkids do it. If you tell your three-year-old child or grandchild, don't touch that vase, 
in the living room, what is the response that begins to happen in them physically? They become consumed with that vase that you have commanded them not to touch. Their little eyes can't leave the vase. This is now the pearl of great price to them. I must look upon its beauty. A a cold bead of sweat starts to trickle down their forehead. they, They start to breathe heavy, almost hyperventilating. Even as their little quivering hand is reaching towards the vase, but they have moved closer and they are hovering around it. Eventually, we know exactly what's going to happen. They are going to reach out for this most valuable object in all of creation. Well, what made that vase the most valuable object to them? What made it so desirable? It was the command. Don't touch that vase. What, what was it about that one tree in the perfect garden that was absolutely filled with all kinds of beautiful, perfect, fruit-bearing trees? What was it about the one tree that made Eve so desperately want the fruit from that tree, that made her lust after the fruit of that tree, even though to eat of it was to risk everything, to risk paradise itself. Well, what was it? It was the law of God that said, you can have all of this, not this one thing. And something rises up in the human heart. Sin through the law creates a surge of rebellion in our hearts, rebellion against God, rebellion against God's law, rebellion against God's appointed authority. Sin is enmity towards God, and the sinner is an enemy of God. And so our, our sin nature twists God's, even God's perfect moral law, so that we want and do sin even more as a, re, as a response to the law. That's how the perfect holy law of God stimulates sin. Augustine writes in his Confessions in the fourth century of a story that that happened in his life when he was 16 years old, when he and some friends went at night to a neighbor's field and stole every pear off of his neighbor's pear tree. Years later then, as he's writing this, as now a, a believer, looking back on that episode from his life, he is reflecting on his actions. Why did I do what I did? Why did I go to the neighbor's house and steal every pear from that tree? And he says, I wasn't hungry. That wasn't why I did it. In fact, I had a lot of pears at home. I didn't need his pears. In fact, we took the pears that we stole from him and we fed them to the pigs. So what drove it? Why did he steal his neighbor's pears? And here's what Augustine says. He says, to enjoy the excitement and thrill of stealing because God said, do not steal. The law of God provokes us to rebel because of our sin nature. Sin twists God's law, using it for evil purposes, inflaming sin within us. But the law is not to blame for this. Any more than these stories we hear every few years where some person jumps over the fence in a zoo. Every few years there's another one of these. They jump into where the bears are. They jump into where the lions are and then, surprise, These animals don't want to just cuddle and have their bellies pet. Well, well, that sign that says at the aquarium, don't jump into the shark tank because these are sharks. That's not to blame when you jump in and get eaten. That's not the sign's fault. 
any more than is the law to blame for warning us of the danger of sin. The law warns us of the danger of sin, and sin comes from the side and takes it from there. So the law of God reveals reveals to us and defines for us what sin is. Second, the law of God destroys self-righteousness. Look now in verse 9 as we continue on. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What does that mean? Well, this is like the person who has no physical symptoms, goes into the doctor for a routine checkup, feeling absolutely fine, but the doctor comes back into the room and in a very serious voice says to them, you have terminal cancer. Paul is saying prior to his conversion, sin was lying dormant in him. It's not that he wasn't a slave to sin. He was a slave to sin, but he thought he was free. He thought he was righteous. He thought he was really alive. He thought he was holy, that he wasn't dead in his sins, that he wasn't a slave to his sin. He was content and happy in his sin, blissfully unaware. He thought he was right with God, but then the great physician confronted him with the facts, with the law. And showed him the state of his own heart. And God opened his eyes to see the seriousness of his own sin. Paul thought he was pleasing to God with his own self-righteousness. But when Christ appeared to him that day on the road to Damascus, in that moment, the law of God was applied to Paul's heart. And all of his self-confidence, all of his self-esteem was destroyed. And for the first time in his life, he realized his need for grace. He hadn't thought he needed grace prior to that. He was the kind of Jew that all Jews aspire to be. Blameless in regard to the law. He he died to his own self-righteousness. He died to his religion of works and earning, and he placed his faith in the risen Savior. So the law then reveals to us the true nature and depth and wickedness of sin. It is the straight edge that shows us just how crooked our hearts are. And in doing so, it humbles us. In doing so, it destroys our own self-righteous and any notion that we are good enough to save ourselves. Third, then, the law of God exposes the deception of sin. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin took the commandment. Sin took the law of God and used it to deceive Paul. This is what sin does. Sin is always at work. Sin never rests. Sin works day and night around the clock, working hard to deceive, to dominate, to destroy. Sin deceives and it deceives like no other. It perfectly deceives the unbeliever, completely deceives the unbeliever. How does sin deceive? Well, in many ways, a few of them, sin deceives by misusing the law, making us think that it is merely external and not internal. The the law can't justify us. It can't save us. The law can't sanctify us. In other words, the law on its own does not make us righteous, but it does reveal God's will to us. It tells us what God desires, not just from our hands and our lips, 
but from our hearts. And sin perverts the law and says, no, 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 it's just the externals that matter. It's just what you physically do that matters. In other words, it's perfectly fine to lust. It's perfectly fine to have disordered sexual desires, shaming passions. It, it is perfectly fine to judge other people in your heart as long as you're not actually saying the words out loud. It is perfectly fine to harbor resentment and hold on to these things and unforgiveness in your heart. It's fine, but don't ever admit it. Just you feel that way. You don't have to do any heart-level work on that. You don't have to repent from that, turn from that, as long as you don't act on it outwardly. In other words, it's saying that our, our evil intentions aren't sinful. It's saying that God doesn't judge our every evil desire, and that is simply not true. It is a lie. Sin deceives by encouraging people to antinomianism. That's a word we've used a few times in Romans. It just means against the law. It says there's no need to be troubled over your sin. There's no need to, to grieve over your sin. You're saved by grace and not works, and so it doesn't really matter whether you sin or not. God will forgive you. It's his job. In fact, the more you sin, the more grace you'll get. So really, what's so bad about that? Sadly, this is a message coming from many modern churches in our culture. They don't even want to use the word sin anymore, so they won't say it the way I said it. They don't want to even say the word sin. That might affect attendance and offering numbers. But the message is just God loves you exactly how you are. No need to change. We affirm you. We accept you. So does God. The truth is God does call you to come to him just as you are. He doesn't say clean yourself up, save yourself, and then you can come to me. No, but the truth is, as we've seen numerous times in the book of Romans, any claim of salvation that doesn't result in a transformed life is a false claim of salvation. Those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. If there's no change, there's been no salvation. It is a, it is a lie. It is sin's lie that says no need to be transformed. Sin also deceives by creating antagonism to the law. It says God is against us rather than for us. It causes us to, to, to look on God's commands with suspicion. God's law is unreasonable. It is unfair. It is, it is unjust, maybe. Maybe it's even oppressive. God has set for us an impossibly high standard. Maybe it's because he doesn't want us to have any fun. Because, oh, true happiness, true fun. And, and friends, every time you sin, this is what's going on in your heart. Happiness lies here. In giving full vent to my anger. Oh, that's where happiness lies. Holding it in, I'd be missing out on one of the great joys of life. Well, the proverb says it's the fool who gives full vent to his anger. The popular version of this just says that the Bible's an outdated book. It's written by flawed, chauvinistic, powerful, racist men. And so we can reject whatever commandments that are in that book that we don't like. Sin deceives by creating self-righteousness in us. It, it causes us to think too highly of ourselves. 
to minimize our guilt and the weight of our condemnation. See, sin was fine with, with the Apostle Paul, then Saul, living a perfectly upright and moral life to the best that he could with his actions, living in such a way that people looked at him and said, there's the prime example of a Jew who keeps the law. Sin was fine with that because it still owned him. It produced self-righteousness in him that made him minimize his, his sin, made him minimize the weight of the condemnation that he was under. John MacArthur says, the person who is deceived into thinking he's acceptable to God because of his own merit and good works will see no need for salvation and no reason for trusting in Christ. The hardest person to see repent and come to genuine saving faith is the person who already thinks they have it. The person who already thinks they're saved, but they are a false convert. Because sin produces self-righteousness inside of us. Sin deceives by masquerading as pleasurable and attractive and satisfying. It, it makes righteousness look drab and unattractive. It says the obedient person is, is the one who is missing out on, on all the fun. The rebellious person is the one who is really living. Again, this is what's going on in our hearts every time we sin. We see true satisfaction and happiness on the other side. Instead of trusting in the God who made us and has revealed to us not only his will, but how he made us. What is actually best? Sin deceives by minimizing its own consequences. It tells you, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. God will forgive you. God will overlook your sin. Of course, there's a nugget of truth there, believers, isn't there? But that truth is dangerously twisted by sin. And what it tells us, listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Do not be deceived. So sin's going to try to deceive us to believe the opposite of what Paul says here. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived into thinking that they will. Because they will not. This is deadly serious. What does it mean to not inherit the kingdom of God? Eternal damnation. Don't be deceived. Sin will try to deceive you into taking sin lightly, and Paul says, don't do it. Don't take it lightly. Sin deceives us into minimizing and overlooking the terrible consequences that sin brings to us. Consequences in this lifetime. We've all seen it. Shattered families. Shattered lives. Generations marred by patterns of sin and shame and bondage. And then as Paul points to in 1 Corinthians 6 here, the unimaginable consequences for all of eternity in hell. And yet sin says to us, you will not surely die. Sin promises life and only delivers death. Sin promises happiness, it only delivers misery. Sin promises fulfillment, it only delivers corruption. Don't be deceived. Fourth then. 
The law of God reveals God's holy will. Verse 12. So, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul says, is, is the law sin? Is there something wrong with the law? By no means. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is pure and righteous. The law is a reflection of God himself. Only someone holy could conceive of a holy law. Only someone righteous and perfectly good could create a standard that was perfectly righteous, perfectly good. The law of God is a revelation of God himself. Listen to the psalmist's description of the law in Psalm 19. We could go all over the place to hear these kind of descriptions in Scripture, but Psalm 19 is very concise and beautifully worded. And listen, as you listen to this description of the law of God that the psalmist gives, think of who the only one who could ever perfectly reflect this, the only one who could perfectly embody these descriptors that the psalmist uses. God himself is the only one who we could describe with the words that the psalmist uses. So the law is a reflection of God. Listen to this beautiful description, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Perfection, surety, unchanging eternally, totally dependable all the time, perfectly upright, pure, clean, spotless, truth, righteousness, to be, to be desired more than the finest things that this world has to offer, sweeter than the best, the best tastes you could ever experience in this life. This is how we might try to describe God himself. It's in this exact kind of language. The law is a reflection of God. It's a, it's a reflection of his own character. To, to know the holy, righteous, good law is to know the lawgiver. To follow the lawgiver is to walk the holy, righteous, and good path of obedience. If you abandon the law, you abandon the lawgiver because his moral law is just a reflection of his character. So Paul says the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good because it reveals God to us. It, it's a reflection of his own character. Fifth then, the law of God reveals our desperate need for a Savior. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Again, there it is. By no means. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What, what then is the divine design and intention of the law of God? It's that sin would be unmasked. That we would see it for what it is. That we would see it rightly. 
in all of its ugliness, in all of its horrors. Sin, sin's primary weapon is deception. It's a primary weapon that sin uses. Look back on your own life. Look back on your life before you were a Christian and think on those things which now you're ashamed of. Think on those things which now you, you shudder to think that you once said those things, did those things. Look even now on your life as a Christian when God kindly convicts you of sin in your own life and you look on those things, was it not deception that led you there? Was it not this false offer of happiness and joy and security and fulfillment and pleasure? Was it not the, law, the lies of sin that led you there? Sin uses deception as its primary weapon and so God uses his law to expose sin for what it is to shine the light on sin so that we can see it in the light and see it for what it is. It's like the person that uh, is laying in bed and wakes up at 2 o'clock in the morning and sees that figure standing in their room and is terrified. They've watched too many shows or movies about murders or home invasions and they know this person's in my house to attack me and it's only when the light is shown upon it that they realize, well, that's just my coat rack. God uses the law to shine the light on sin, to reveal what's really there, to reveal it for what's going on. The, the law reveals sin as utterly sinful, as totally repulsive, as completely foul, as shameful, and the law does this so that we will hate it. So we won't want to get up close to it. So we won't flirt with it. The law does this so that we will hate sin the way God hates sin. So that we will see it for what it really is and we will flee from it. Jesus exposed Satan in this way. John 10 verse 10. Satan was exposed. The light shone on him when Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. This is what sin does. It wants to steal. It wants to kill. It wants to destroy. It is a reflection of Satan's nature. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus uses the law to shine the light on sin so that we'll see it for what it is. The law is not sin. Rather, the law unmasks sin. The, the law doesn't bring death. Rather, it reveals your deadness. The law doesn't bring condemnation. You're under condemnation. The law reveals it. We must, therefore, preach God's holy law. We must so that the Holy Spirit might convict sinners of their sin in order that they might turn to Jesus. It is a it is a popular thing in this day to condemn these churches. You know these, you know the kind. These fire and brimstone churches. Always talking about sin. Always talking about the things that they're against. Always talking about the things that people shouldn't do. These, these bigoted, old-fashioned, outdated churches like Maple Grove. Friends, if we, if we don't preach the truth of God's law, 
The Holy Spirit's not going to convict sinners of their sin. It is a means by which the Holy Spirit uses to shine the light on sin and convict people of sin so that they might turn to Jesus. So when we go with the flow of our culture and say, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that. It makes people feel uncomfortable. God forbid an adulterer was sitting in our midst and heard us condemn adultery and, and read from 1 Corinthians 6 and say that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God and feel judged. Oh, we don't want to be those kind of Christians. Friends, there's no salvation outside the utter and supreme lordship of Jesus Christ. We must turn from sin, trust in him. We must preach Christ and him crucified for sinners. Jesus only saves sinners. That's the only category of people he saves. And so if we, if we remove that title, sinner, from hanging over the heads of people, we are moving them out of the category of people Jesus saves. He doesn't just co-sign for good people. The Apostle Paul didn't say, and, and on that road to Damascus, Jesus told me, stop being mean to the Christians, but listen, you've lived a good life. Let me just, you know, you're in because of that. No, no, no. Jesus saves sinners. He only saves those who are convicted of their utter sinfulness and run to him in humble repentance, renouncing their sin. That is the only kind of people that Jesus saves. The good news is, if we had taken the time to keep reading in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, such people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and such were some of you. Jesus only saves sinners, but Jesus saves sinners. This is the best news. That's why the gospel is called the gospel. It means good news. So the doctrine of, of sin and law is, is absolutely essential to understanding the good news, to understanding the gospel, the gospel that saves, the gospel that Paul told us in chapter 1, verse 16 of this letter to the Romans. That he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. We need the whole counsel of God's word. That's, that's one of the reasons we preach here expository sermons. Verse by verse. We, we can't merely just say to people week after week, God forgives you. God's going to save you. No, what does God forgive what is it that God forgives? Because people are going around saying God forgives you, but they will never tell a person that they have something that needs forgiven. Just affirm you for those things. What is it that God forgives? What does he save us from? And how does he do it? We need the whole counsel of God. When we preach God's moral law, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. We are given answers to those questions. What do I need to be forgiven for? What do I need to be saved from? How can I be saved? We become aware of our desperate condition. We, we come to know our deadness and bondage in sin. We come to know that we are under the just condemnation of a holy God. And it's then and only then that the Holy Spirit can lift our eyes to Christ. Enable us to repent of sin and turn to Christ in faith and be saved. The law on its own can't do that. It can't justify. It can't 
sanctify us. It wasn't designed to do that. The law is not given to us to show us how good we have to be in order to make it. It's given to show us how good we will never be. And just how high the standard of holiness really is. Just how unattainable that standard is. The law is not the cure. It's the x-ray that reveals just how extensive our infestation with sin really is. The truth is, sin is extremely powerful. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, next to God, sin is the greatest power in the universe. He's absolutely right. Sin is incredibly powerful. More powerful than any human being. It's only the grace of God that can defeat and conquer sin's great power. It's the only way. So we're saved from sin's penalty and power and corruption, from the law's just and good condemnation of our sin, only by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And then, only then, only when that has happened, only when our our dead hearts have been made to live, only when, when we have been credited with Christ's righteousness, only when we are in Christ, hidden in him, then we can see that the law is good. Now we can see for the first time, this law is good, it's pure, it's righteous, it's holy. It's given to us for our joy. It's given to us to convict us of sin. It's given to us to reveal our God to us so that we'll worship him, so that we'll surrender our lives to him in humble obedience, so that we'll be transformed ever more into the likeness of Christ. All unregenerate people are far, far weaker than sin. They are totally dominated by it totally deceived by it, totally bound by it, but all who are in Christ have authority over sin. We're not bound. We don't have to sin. We've been set free in Christ. We are in him, and it is only when God has applied his law to our hearts so that we see sin for what it is, we see ourselves for who we are, and we see Christ for who he is. It's, it's then, it's then that we are saved, delivered, transformed into his likeness day by day from one glory to the next. This is the work of God in us through his good law. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your living word. Lord, your, your word is good. Your word is pure. It's righteous. Your word produces in your people obedience and a greater desire for obedience. It causes us to see you for who you are. It reveals to us sin for what it is so that we are wanting to flee from sin, repent of sin, renounce sin, and run to Christ. Lord, I pray for those that are hearing my voice that have not done that. Lord, they are still fully deceived by sin. Lord, would you by your spirit shine now the light of your law, apply it to their hearts. Cause them to see their sin for what it is. Cause them to see their desperate condition condemned under the just law of a holy God. Cause them to despair their sin, but to run to Christ. Lift their eyes to see the Savior crucified for sinners. Risen, victorious, ready to save, whose arms are open wide, ready to receive all who will call upon him, all who will come to him in humble repentance and faith. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, give to them that gift.
Lord, for the rest of us, let us continue to to walk free from the, the deceiving lies of sin. Let us continue, Lord, in your kindness to us to see more and more clearly sin for what it really is so that it will look foul to us and righteousness will look good to us. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would do this work and I pray, Lord, with, with confidence because you've promised to do this work. You've promised not just to save us but to transform us into the likeness of our Savior. So I pray, Lord, that, that you would do that work in us Lord, that we would be faithful ambassadors. Even as we proclaim these truths, Lord, that we would do so in love. We don't want to be rightly accused of being hateful. We don't want to rightly be accused of being judgmental. We know that the world will call us these things. But Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful and humble ambassadors of your kingdom. For your glory, your people's eternal joy, we pray these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.